You're listening to The Unsunday Show. Leaving behind religious obligation to find a more authentic expression of Christ in us, this is The Unsunday Show. Hello, friends. Mike Adams here with the Unsunday Show. I hope that this week's episode finds you doing well. The topic on today's show is going to center around a uh, a comment that I received from a previous episode called Relaunch Part Two, where I asked the question, "Who has bewitched you?" If you'll remember, in that episode, I talked about how we confuse the old covenant with the new, and by not making a clear distinction of that, it causes problems within our assemblies. Well, following that episode, I got a comment from an individual that I want to spend some time answering. His comment really was a two-parter. He said this, Communities used to be built around the church, literally. And to that comment, I agreed. Then he followed it up with another question, and he said, Wasn't that a good thing, that bonded communities? Now, that's a really good question. And that's a question that, like I said a minute ago, deserves a thorough answer. It it deserves more than a yes or a no. It deserves something more thought out than that. And so that's what I want to attempt to do in this episode of the Unsunday Show is answer that question. Wasn't that a good thing that bonded communities? Because I don't think the answer to this is a simple yes or a simple no. I think there has to be some context built around it. You know, on the one hand, I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, wasn't that a good thing that bonded communities? uh, You know, it depends on what we're talking about here again. Are we talking about institutional Christianity, institutional religion as a system, or are we talking about individuals in our lives, fellow believers in our lives, who we spend time with? If we're talking about the latter, I would never disagree with that. You know, that's a beautiful thing. I I love having other believers in my life. I I love having non-believers in my life. I have a mixture of both. I just enjoy being around and with people. But when it comes to other believers in my in my life, I would I would say, yeah, this you know this bonds us together. We need this. We need each other. I talked last time about Hebrews ten twenty five and the accusation that sometimes is uh, thrown in our face about how we're forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Well, I don't know anybody like that. I'm sure those people are out there somewhere that are trying to get away from it all, but I don't know who they are. They're not in my life. The people that I know who've left institutional Christianity have a very strong bond and a very strong want to, to be around and with other believers. So yeah, if that's what we're talking about, when we say, wasn't that a good thing to bond in communities, I would say absolutely, if that's what we're talking about. But when I talk about institutional religion or institutional Christianity, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about other believers in my life, other friends in my life who are there to support me, to help me, and and I can support and help them. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about a religious institution that takes control. And so if we put the answer in that context and we say, wasn't that a good thing to bonded communities? I would say, yeah, it bonded communities, but no, it wasn't a good thing. Because the track record, the history of how this came about isn't good. The history of institutional religion isn't a good history. 
And so that's what I want to spend the majority of the time on as we talk about this today and we attempt to answer this question today. You'll remember a number of episodes ago that we talked about sacral systems. We talked about what a sacral system is. And when we talked about a sacral system, one of the examples I gave you was ancient Rome. Rome at the time of Jesus. Rome at the time of the Gospels. And when I use the phrase sacral system, especially as it relates to Rome, I'm referring to the fact that Rome had an emperor. You had to conform to Rome. Rome didn't conform to you. And, of course, Rome, as a society, was imposed on everybody that they conquered. Roman laws were imposed on everyone that came under the umbrella of Rome. And there was only room for one emperor. There was only room for one person to be worshipped or one person to set the rules, if you will. And so by a sacral society or a sacral system, I simply mean a society or a group that's held together by rulers who are in charge, and everyone in the society is committed or obligated to follow that ruler. That's a sacral society. That's a sacral system. And of course, in Rome, it was a secular sacral society. Say that 10 times real fast. That's why when I think of Jesus' answer when he was asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And, you know, Jesus asked for a coin, and then he said, whose inscription is on it? And then Jesus' answer was incredible. You know, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. That blew the minds of the people listening. Because in a, in a sacral society, in a sacral system like that, you didn't go against Caesar. And so Jesus answered that question beautifully in that sacral society. And again, in that sacral society, the people were bound together by a common loyalty. And that common loyalty was to Rome. And there wasn't any room for dissension. If you rebelled against that, if you didn't conform to that, then you'd be punished. But you say, yeah, that's a secular example, but isn't the church different? Well, let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to the time of Constantine in the early 4th century, when Constantine ruled that Christianity became the state religion. When Christianity became the state religion at the time of Constantine, the sacral society moved. The sacral, not physically, the sacral society, the, the philosophy of the sacral society moved. It moved from being a secular sacral society to now being a Christian sacral society. It went from being illegal to be a believer, being illegal to be a Christian, to now being illegal not to be a Christian. But conformity was still the name of the game. Everyone in a geographical area was considered now to be part of the church, and the, and the church was state-run. The church now had the arm of the state. The church had an army. The church wielded the sword. And the church enforced its ideas onto the Christian sacral society, and I'm using air quotes when I say Christian, onto the Christian sacral society by force. As an example, let's use baptism. Adults were forced to be baptized whether they believed or not. If you lived in a, in a geographical area that was ruled by Rome, then eventually you were considered part of the church just by virtue of being alive. And in order to be part of the church, you had to be baptized. And so adults were forced to be baptized whether they personally believed or not. Not only that, but their babies had to be baptized. And so infant baptism grew because everyone in a geographical location under the rule of Rome was now considered to be part of the church. And personal belief just kind of went out the window. And if you dissented, if you said, well, I don't agree with that, I'm not going to do that, then you were punished by any means up to and including death. This is, a, this is Christian sacralism. 
because the emperor is still in charge, it's still Rome, but now it's a Christianized Rome, and you had to conform to the rules. And so we might object and say, well, okay, that was under Constantine, but what about later during the time of the Reformation? Well, let's fast forward again, and let's look at that time of the Reformation and see what it was like. And what we come away with after all the dust settles is we can see that the Reformers kept that same system in place as far as having a Christian sacral society. The only difference was it wasn't Rome now. It was the Reformers who, who were still wed to the state. They just had a bigger army. And so they were able to not conform to Rome's idea of a sac Christian sacral state. And really, they came away kind of creating their own. They didn't leave that stuff behind. If you lived in a geographic location during the time of the Reformation, you were still considered a part of the church just by virtue of being alive and living there. And you still had to be baptized, and your babies had to be baptized as part of the church at that time. I mean, pick up any church history book, and you, know, you can read that. You'll see it right there. It'll jump off the pages at you. And so the Reformers didn't really reform very far, in my opinion. Yeah, they may have made some theological points a little bit clearer. But as far as moving away from this system where the official church controls what's in the community to the extent that you must conform, that conformity wasn't optional, they didn't move at all. They just had a different army. And so the church remained wed to the state at the time of the Reformation. And if anyone objected to that, like the Anabaptists, then they were persecuted and killed. They were killed by those in charge in the sacral community, the Christian sacral community called church. There's a really good book by Leonard Verdine called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren, which is a detailed examination of that time. Because the, the Anabaptists, and Anabaptists just means rebaptizers, they saw that we shouldn't be baptizing people who don't believe and we shouldn't be baptizing babies. But the baptism really was reserved for those who had personally confessed Christ and had personally come to faith in Jesus not for everyone in a, in a particular geographic location. So the Anabaptists started to object and say, well, we don't believe this. We think that baptism is for believers. And they had a couple of other things they believed too, like all of the gifts functioning, not, not a one-person, top-down authority kind of a thing that we see in, church, in churches today. We see it at the time of the Reformation, and we see it today as well. They didn't hold any of that. And so what happened? They got persecuted. They got the microphone taken away. They didn't, they didn't, it was illegal for them to meet. Some of them gave their lives because they objected and disagreed with this Christian sacralism, which had moved from uh, Rome now to the Reformers. But it was still a Christian sacral society that controlled the community. And it wasn't pretty. People died because they thought, well, you know, baptism's for believers, and we shouldn't be baptizing our kids or baptizing our babies and baptizing people who don't profess to believe and don't really have any interest in it. But that's what the church was doing at the time, because everyone in a geographical area was considered part of the church. And so the Reformers didn't move very far away from Rome. They kept the power. They just had a different army again, but they kept the power, and, they, and the state enforced the laws that the church had instituted onto people in the community. And anyone who saw through that and said enough about it to make a big stink was persecuted to the point of even dying. I also, in a, in a previous episode or two, I don't remember how many I did now, but I talked about William Tyndale. William Tyndale was another martyr that the church murdered because he saw a difference. He saw things that were going on, and 
even though his situation was a little bit different, he was translating the Bible into English so that people could actually understand what was going on, getting it out of uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate and bringing it into English so that those English readers could actually understand what was going on and have the Bible in their own language for themselves and make up their own minds. Well, while Tyndale was doing that, there was a handful of words, like 10 or 11 words that he saw had been mistranslated, and so he went about to correct that. One of them was the word church. He saw that the word church really wasn't even in the New Testament except on two occasions. Though the English word that's translated church is, has its roots in a Greek word that only appears in two spots in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, and in Revelation, when John is talking about the Lord's Day, the word church comes from the Greek word kuriakon, which means a Lord's possession, something belonging to a Lord. So we have the Lord's Supper, and we have the Lord's Day. Those are the two instances of the word church in the New Testament. Everywhere else that we see the word church in our English Bibles, it's the word ecclesia, which doesn't mean church. The word ecclesia just means a congregation or an assembly or a called out people. And Tyndale saw the importance of preserving not only that word, but several other words within the New Testament and translating them correctly. Well, the organized church, the institutional religion that was in place at the time, which was Christian sacralism, told him to stop, and he didn't do it. So what happened? Well, they tied him to the stake to burn him, but before they lit him on fire because he wouldn't stop talking, they got so enraged at him that they raced up onto the pile before they, they lit it on fire and they strangled him. And after they strangled him and he died, they went ahead and burned his body. That's Christian sacralism brought to its logical end. And that's the history of the church. The church is rooted in that history. And that went on for years and years and years. And the whole hierarchical system within our churches was reinforced and reinstated and enforced by the state, by the military, by the army. That's the history. That's the beginning of the history of the church's legacy in being part of the community. So that's why I wanted to slow down a little bit, and I wanted to answer that question a little more thoroughly than just saying no or just saying yes. I wanted to be able to explain myself and explain what I meant when this gentleman asked, isn't that a good thing that bonded communities? Again, it gets back to, okay, what's our definition of community? Is our definition of community an institutional setting, an institutional religion that is telling us we have to be a part of in order to be a valid expression of Christ? Is that our community? If that's our community, then we haven't moved very far from that Christian sacral system, have we? The sacral system's gotten smaller. We call them denominations today, or we might call them by some other name. But once you become a part of that system, you're obligated to do the things that the system requires you to do. In that sense, it's kind of a sacral system. You can't disagree. If you do disagree, you're going to be forced out or you're going to be ostracized or somehow, something's going to happen that is going to mark you out as a troublemaker. You're not going to be allowed to stay in that setting very long. So while we don't have these huge sacral societies over these large geographic areas anymore, we have these little tiny ones. We have the one down on the corner. We have the one up on the other corner. We have the one down the street here. They're all little mini-sacral systems if it's a religious system, because that's what religious systems require. Religious systems require you to comply. Because remember, the religious system, an institutional religion, is primarily concerned with perpetuating itself. That's why it's telling you things like you need to tithe. You need to be, you need to be doing better at your spiritual disciplines. 
You need to come and join us with formal membership. You need to do this and this and this in order to stay in God's graces and stay in our good graces. And if you don't, then there's going to be trouble. And so really, we haven't moved that far away from that. Yeah, it's on more of a micro scale, but it's still there to different extents, depending on where you're going. And so was that a good thing to bond communities? Hey, listen, let me get back to what I said at the very beginning. I love being around believers most of the time. I'm an introvert, so sometimes I like to go stand in a corner. But I, I like being around God's people. But that's different than, than being compelled to submit to a institutional religious system that demands things of me that God isn't demanding. That's a lot different. And so I wanted to separate those two things out and make sure that we're talking about two different things here as we talk. Because institutional religion, when it gives us this top-down authority thing, if you get somebody in there, if you get the wrong person in there, man, you're headed for trouble. Because really what we've done is, you know, we've, we've so elevated the pastor that we've turned that into a profession. We don't really look at spiritual giftedness. We look at resumes. We look at your credentials. We look at what school you went to. And it's become a career choice. It's become a career path. And if you get the wrong person in there, man, watch out because the abuse can start. And look all around you. I mean, you know, it's in a lot of places. It's, it's going on. It's happening. That's because we have this system that we have in place that is a religious system that is most often referred to as church, not ecclesia. And the body of Christ is different than the church. And there's more than one valid expression of Christ in us. And for me, Christ in me is best expressed outside those four walls of the institutional religion. But again, that's descriptive. That's not necessarily prescriptive. I get it that some people like that, like being in there and like that structure. I I get that. I'm just not one of them. And this show is for those who aren't one of them. Because there's a lot of people who feel compelled or who have left institutional religion, institutional Christianity, who are looking for something more. That's one of the reasons that I started the Unsunday show, is for that group of people, for those people. My goal here, my mission here, isn't to get people out of institutional Christianity. It's to make sure that we have open and honest and frank discussions about institutional Christianity so people can make up their own mind. But any time we put a structure in place, like top-down authority, like the use of honorific titles, the things Jesus warned against doing, and quite frankly, commanded us not to do, those things that we seem to turn a deaf ear to and do anyway, those are the things that get us in trouble. And again, I'm not saying that every institutional church is like this. I know of some that aren't. But by and large, those are the exception, not the rule. So was it a good thing that bonded communities? Well, yes and no. To be bonded with other believers in community is a great thing. To feel like I'm obligated to be bonded to an institutional religion that can easily become abusive and harmful is not a good thing. So that's the answer to that question that I wanted to bring up. I thought it was a really good question, and I wanted to spend some time on it in this episode. So hey, I'm going to let you go for now, and I really appreciate you joining me on this episode of the Unsunday Show. And we'll talk again soon. And until then, y'all take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Unsunday Show. To be a part of this ongoing conversation, visit us online at unsunday.com.